0: everybody most of us have experienced or witnessed some disruption in our lives we know someone who's gotten fired or lost their home or been in a tremendous accident now up the ante and think about what happens when entire communities face disasters think of what people in ukraine or syria or the congo of Venezuela go through. Think of places where there have been floods and hurricanes and out of control wildfires. Angela Blanchett is here again to talk about how communities pull together after a natural disaster has happened. She's been to many parts of the globe after the unthinkable happens. Angela is a senior fellow at Brown University and a nationally recognized expert on disaster recovery. Here is Angela. Hello, everybody. It is with sheer delight that I bring back to you Angela Blanchard. Angela, I, you'll see in the show notes her accomplishments, She she's a senior fellow with Brown University and has a list of other affiliations I'll read to you. She's a board member of the Business Innovative Factory Advisory Board and other advisory boards and all of that. You can read about it in the show notes. Last time, Angela was here to talk about how to foster innovations in nonprofits. I don't think that's what we called it, but essentially that's what it was. And if you're interested, you can find it on blog 61. She's back now for her true passion on how people recover from disasters. So welcome, Angela.
1: Uh, Thanks, Jean. It's great to be back. And it's great to be here to talk about the thing that is driving me now and has been driving me for quite a while.
0: Okay, so well... Where would you I, like to start? Well, I want to start with why disasters. You have a motto that you put in Facebook, among other places. I think it's on your website, Born for Storms. I know it's on your, your LinkedIn profile. Born okay. for Storms? How, what What's the background to that?
1: Well... I think, I think some of us actually function really well uh, when everything's spinning out of control and when things are truly chaotic and there's a sense of um, sometimes threat, but also sometimes just uh, unpredictability. Some of us function really well, and there are a lot of us, in, a lot of the people in my family actually function really, really well when the environment is chaotic and confusing. Uh, we see opportunity where a lot of people, when a lot of other other people are pretty scared. Um, I actually uh, got some ext- extremely valuable coaching at one point in my career uh, because I took the Berkman, and um, on the change score and the challenge score, I was near a hundred, and I thought that was such a good grade. Um, but it, and it's fine to be change and challenge. And but as the coach told me, I'm really um, engaged and fired up and focused when other people uh, are scared to death. <laughs> so, whoa
0: wait a minute hang on let's listen yeah. let,
1: i want you to say that again i'm really engaged fired up in focus when a lot of other people are just really scared so okay. it taught me that where when i would think oh this is going to be an incredible opportunity we can do some great work here that that sensation for me Uh, was not, uh, was uh, quite often wasn't shared by everyone in the (laughs) arena. Other people are going. People are saying, oh no,
0: oh no. (laughs) (laughs) What are you thinking? (laughs) Yeah. And you're looking
1: up and saying, oh, joy and delight. That is why. Well, maybe not joy because often the situations are quite painful. Okay. But I am saying, yes, this is workable. This is something we can
0: ride and get to a better place.
1: This is workable. We can craft something out of this chaos that can reduce suffering and um, make way for healing. So, yeah.
0: Okay. So you mentioned the Berkman. For those who are not familiar with it, would you just give a very, very brief synopsis and uh, and explain what your score on that one dimension meant?
1: Well, I'm not, I really want to be careful what I say there, because I, I don't know a great deal about it. And I, I just was taking it, essentially. But um, it measures a lot of the ways we work and how we show up at work and what our, you know, sort of what our muscles are for conducting ourselves in a professional environment. And um, it's scored so that, it, you know, if you're getting a 50, you're sort of with everybody else. Uh, or with the majority of people. But if you have a score on either end, or say in the 90s, you are definitely kind of to the extreme. So um, so Born for Storms means, for me, just able, able to function really, really well in chaos. N- not that it doesn't affect me, but that... Um, Storms are something I expect in life and that I've spent most of my life around people who at some point in their lives um, had the rug pulled out from under them. And that knowledge and wisdom about how we go on after the unthinkable is what I'm most and deep, deeply interested in.
0: What do you do in your brain, Angela? <laughs> people, uh, people. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of firefighters going in the in a building. Yeah. You know? Oh. Yeah. Well, Gene, they're trained true. to do that. They're trained mm. to change their minds about what's happening. What What goes in on your mind?
1: Well, I, I think it starts with how I grew up, to be honest, and that we had no sense of entitlement to anything, nor any <laughs> sense of of um, predictability, and we were living always a little on the edge. So throughout my family are people who really don't perceive. Whereas others think, "Oh my gosh, that's so risky." We think, "Well, you don't have something. You try, see if you can make something work. If you succeed, then you have something. This is good." <laughs> so we don't we don't experience this kind of fear of trying something really big or difficult because. It's like all the campaigns I did. We didn't have the money. We sought the money. If we got do the you money, at we,
0: Baker, we, Ripley, the yeah, we had
1: the there. money. So, you know, you're kind of like wired to give it a try. Um, I want to say, though, also, we in this, in our society, we focus when we think of disasters or we think of extreme emergencies in the U.S. in particular, we're very, very focused on First responders and the emergency phase and the dramatic phase and the run for to the fire, Um, but you know that's that's the first minutes, the first hours, perhaps the first days. Um, There's a whole story that follows that, and I think there's a lot more to be said about all of the people who are able to craft um, some. Whole, wholeness and healing out of that in that long tail after the unthinkables occurred. And that, that doesn't look quite like this high water rescue dangling from the helicopter moment that we like to get for the news. Um, there's a whole other kind of work. And for the first time, uh, one of the things that was really interesting about COVID was that we? That was a long tail disaster. So we were not able to get that emergency rescue shot and then roll on. And then we could see. Um, we could see, which brings me to this really important point about disasters: their revelatory uh, feature of uh, the rev- revelatory aspect of disasters. But then in Covid, we could actually see all the people that are normally not on our screen, that are stitching it up, that are making it better, that are tending and caring, and holding the hands and being with people as they struggle or suffer. So that was a very that was a very it, it was an important moment in which we got a lot of learning about who actually manages recovery. Ah, so
0: before the people who were managing the after the aftercare after the disaster, we could we they they fade away and new news pops on the screen. But with COVID, we kept seeing what happens after. What?
1: Yeah, what- we in the U.S. We're so we're so to- almost toxically individualistic, yes. right? So this is an issue we have. And we love individual heroic stories. We love the story of the individual and look at them do this great thing. And that narrative is the narrative that we promote, whether it's the individual or the institution, the single institution, we're promoting a heroic narrative that's very narrow and very immediate and very emergent. So, we shifted in COVID to see, it forced us to, didn't it? To actually look at the whole context where people were getting sick and who was care- who was rescuing them, who was taking them to the hospital, who was caring for them at the hospital, who had to care for them when they could go home, if they could go home. And then how we all had to care for one another in the arena. So. It it was an instance in which the whole disaster story got very slow, so suddenly we could, the, we could down. see all the we could all the actors
0: right. right. It moved beyond the six o'clock news,
1: and I have to point out, um, in the interest of being a good feminist still, that. I have often suspected that the reason the the emergent phase gets so much attention is you see far more men active in that stage. And then if you look at what the remaking, the remaking of lives and the rebuilding of communities and attending and mending and healing work, that um, it tends to be more women doing that work. Ah. And so you get the sense that perhaps There might be a little sexism at play as well um, that keeps our attention on the people we think of as real heroes, as opposed to those who perform heroically in a more protracted and more persevering way. Okay. So
0: you're, okay, you have laid the background of why you can handle disasters and, and your, approach to it as a, an opportunity yeah why did this become a professional focus what happened so, so that you yeah. invested decide to invest your life work into this area
1: well like like so many of us gene we we've witnessed the narrative of climate change right right we we've actually in Texas especially, heard all the variations about what's gonna happen, whose fault is it? Is it really happening? It's not really happening. It looks like it's happening, but it's just weather. We've heard it all, but anyone paying attention can see that the events and the that are unfolding have unprecedented, the most overworked word, unprecedented scale uh, and impact. And as Katrina was the awakening for me, having grown up on the Gulf coast um, and being Cajun, meaning all my relatives, you know, live, virtually everybody I love lives right in the path of a hurricane. So, you know, we grew up with uh, hurricanes coming, make a big pot of gumbo, the relatives all come, because even Beaumont, as low as it is, was higher than where they were from, and you know the water comes in, the water goes out. So um, that's before
0: Katrina. That's what yeah. That's what yeah. you're used to. So you're used to a
1: hurricane and a pot of gumbo. Exactly. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and we all and we all come together. That's the key. And we, we all, all come together. Come together. Okay. Um, what and her? We speak of Katrina as the hurricane, but really it was the failure of the levees. So the failure I, of the levees.
0: Yes. Yes. It Let's was
1: be clear that we wouldn't we would be struggling to remember the name of the hurricane that happened in 2005 had the levees not failed. Um, but the multiple failures of the levees and the fact that New Orleans filled up like a bowl and water sat. In people's homes, and businesses, and places of worship, places of worship, and schools, and churches, all of it, and it sat there for weeks, and um, and what, as a person who's focused a lot on systems, and particularly complex systems, that interplay of that natural disaster, that was drastically compounded by the man-made failure. Uh, catastrophic failure to maintain the levees um, created this devastating, devastating wound um, for the nation. That it was New Orleans and Katrina, and now I find that it was such a profound, um, I've, I've, such a, it's such a profound images that we carry from Katrina. Few of us. were unaffected. I mean, it was almost impossible not to be moved, not to be shocked, not to revise our understanding of how things work. And again, I point to the revelatory nature of disasters, that we are often um, really unseen when it comes to the structure of things. Um, So I think about in a, in a really literal way, the Grenfell tower uh, that burned in UK, we couldn't see the structure of that building until all the cladding fell away. And then you saw how it was built, how it was made. So disasters have that effect and that whatever is flooded or burned or washed away or threatened or uh, destroyed also exposes how things were built. Now we see the structure and that's the really a reckoning isn't it we saw people's economic and social and political vulnerability and powerlessness we saw um a disin uh, a, a history of disinvestment in neighborhoods and communities right. we saw a failure on the part of the country which is persistent a persistent failure on the part of the country to value the Gulf Coast and to protect the resources, assets, and people on the Gulf Coast in a a measure that's commensurate with the contribution we make to the country. So this is um, one of the features that is most important about disasters. One of the opportunities, if we're willing and we have the courage is to look at what's exposed and then rather than scurry quickly to recreate what we had, it's a chance, if we take it, to rethink and do something different.
0: Okay, so what you're saying is, disasters give us an opportunity not to go back to where we were, but to look at where we could be and to rethink how we wanna shape things yeah. To make it better,
1: and to prevent from what happened
0: before to happen again,
1: we see we see a lot of uh, when you think back to COVID. We, how much did we learn about the actual healthcare system? Who had access? For whom was it available? Whether it was the actual care that people needed if they were sick or the vaccine. What were the structures? How were people at, were able to receive um, information, help, support, treatment? We learned a lot about how things did and did not work, and for whom. Right. So that every and we
0: learned about government, city government,
1: all of that. Who's responsibility? The health
0: department and the, and the mayor. We learned about government too.
1: Yes, <laughs> we did. Uh, Yeah, so we, we get to see how we've structured our systems, how the systems were built and for whom, and then we can choose whether we rush back to recreate that or we say, hmm, that didn't work for a lot of the people. And some of the harm that this virus or this hurricane caused had to do with the structure and not the virus or the hurricane.
0: Okay, so I can apply that to post George Floyd, where Uh the country was awakened to what people, Black people, have been saying Uh since I was born that there's a Uh disproportionate impact on us of what law enforcement, that the police Uh don't necessarily take our word for it. So, post George Floyd, and what many organizations started doing after that is saying, how can we restructure what we're doing inside our organizations to be more diverse, to be more inclusive, to be more equitable? And so a whole wave of rethinking came in.
1: Yes, as a exactly. Result of that. Exactly. I think the beauty of that for me in, in the aftermath yes. was I point to what you say. Some organizations, instead of issuing their you know, dressed up for public consumption PR version of, um, of righting the wrongs, actually undertook a kind of deep reflection. Um, and I was working with one set of business leaders and one of the bankers that I was working with around uh, the response to uh, the George Floyd's murder he was saying, well, should we be doing this? Should we be doing that? I said, first, you should change the way you bank people. You know, we yes. don't need you to become a social justice warrior uh, because you're way too far away from that to do it well. We need you to bank differently. <laughs> Thank <laughs> because you. all these all these systems that you have in place um everything from credit scores all those structures that feed and support who gets hired who gets a loan who gets an investment who even gets the information about a deal that could be beneficial all of that that's your work redo that <laughs> because if that's not representative of the the world around you then your system is flawed and I think that the this is what I've stri- I've been striving my whole life to get this across. If you look at the pool of people, whether it's the pool of people in the shelter or the pool of people in the line for a vaccine, or if it's the pool of people that get a business loan, and they don't look like the population, the system's broken, not the people. And that that. I I will I will never move on that. <laughs> I I think the well I love the the spiritual the like a tree planted by the water. I shall not be moved on that. I'm immovable, immovable. The system's broken, not the people.
0: Yes. Look at look at look at it. look at the system first, and see and what second,
1: predisposed the, and third. And forth. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
0: Sorry. And Sorry. see what predisposed what you got. What yeah. set up the chain of events? How's the system structure So the way people are acting, it gets reinforced. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So who gets in is, is pre selected way down the line. Right. And there is a precedent that is historic. There's precedent that's current. There's, pre- that you're maintaining essentially. The system that selects those folks to to be included in the people who are left out to be left out.
0: Yes, absolutely. We made
1: it. We got to remake it.
0: (laughs) Okay. So let's go back to Katrina. Katrina happened. And what change did it bring in you specifically?
1: Well, I was going back and forth between New Orleans and Houston. Almost every other week, I would be back in New Orleans. I had quickly, um, we had the responsibility. Let's just say, wait,
0: hang on. For those who don't know, you live in Houston. Yeah. New Orleans is a six-hour drive away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when you say you're going back and forth, you're driving back and forth between yeah. Houston and yeah. and uh, New Orleans. OK,
1: driving until you could fly again. And I think the first time I was there was right about a month after uh-huh. really when you could, you know, I, I, I really was the only person on I was walking down Canal Street to go pick up a battery for something. And I, I was the only person that I saw that really, I didn't see any other women and I didn't see anybody that wasn't in a uniform the first time I went. And um, because, and I I just, by way of, you know, background also, I think I had 11 relatives that lived in New Orleans before Katrina. And um, and of course, you know, a number of them moved. Um, But, and I have relatives in, every just virtually every small town on either side of I-10 from Houston to New Orleans. So there has not been a hurricane that hit the Gulf coast in the last 20 years. that didn't impact someone in my family. I have a large Cajun family and, you know, I have relatives in Lake Charles and relatives in Cameron, Louisiana and Eunice. And so, um, you know, I, I went to New Orleans because I understood something about New Orleans that not everyone did. And that if you say you live in Houston, that can mean you live anywhere from Clear Lake to Katy. Right. And you live actually in your house uh, the way most people live in Houston. It's not the way I do, but most people live in Houston in a triangle. You know, my house, my work, my place of worship as a triangle they live in. There's a handful of people that live in a neighborhood and identify with that neighborhood in some deep-rooted way. But since about 70% of the people in the region were not born here, we're not largely rooted in neighborhoods, which was exactly the inverse of how people lived in New Orleans. The 400,000 people that lived in New Orleans prior to Katrina overwhelmingly had roots that went back generations. They were exact opposite. It was something like 70% of New Orleanians actually were born there and their parents were born there. And they were from St. Rock or Treme or Central City or Lower Ninth. That's who they were. So people weren't choosing and weren't making up their minds about returning from Houston to New Orleans, they were making up their minds about whether or not they were going back to Treme or Central City or you know, Lakeview or a host of other neighborhoods where they had roots and family and the corner grocery store and then all of the rituals that were part of the way people lived in that city. So I knew for us to do a good job here of helping people navigate the systems and choices that they had to deal with in terms of where are they going back or are they going to remake their lives here or elsewhere, we had to know what was going on in the neighborhoods. So we began, I began working to make individual connections with community center leaders in New Orleans, um, in those neighborhoods. And so that we, we had clear and up-to-date information about conditions. Who is the we? Um, well, Actually, at that time, I was part of a very large group of people that had been assembled by the mayor and the county judge, and we were leaders of multiple organizations in Houston that had um, taken on the job of welcoming and resettling our neighbors uh, from New Orleans. and And also, it should be mentioned, not just New Orleans, uh, the Mississippi yeah. Gulf Coast, and all places between. So, um, you know, I think I don't think I was the only person in Houston that really grasped the the difference between the way people lived in New Orleans versus the way we live in Houston. Uh, but I think I was at the table with a lot more of that knowledge than most people had, um, okay. and I had a lot of relationships, frankly, in Louisiana. And it, you know, there's all kinds of ways to offer people like, you know, Houstonians were, we were at our best truly in many ways during Katrina. But at the end of the day, as someone said, you know, there's no soul in Houston. (laughs) You know, if you're from New Orleans, they, we just, they, we, we lack soul. They're like, there's a lot of heart here, not soul. Yeah. And I understood that. I mean, that we live, you know, in Houston, here's the equation. You get a job, a house, and a car, (laughs) go to work, live well. New Orleans, it was history and music and food and family and ritual and celebration. New Orleans was built for life and we were built to work. So you, I'm trying, I'm trying to get, figure
0: out how did Katrina impact you personally so that you chose disasters as a focus
1: well it it i don't think i was the only one that observed that we yeah were, but i'm talking we were,
0: to you so i want you to I, I
1: know i'm trying to say that it was an utter the response was a catastrophic failure the levees failed catastrophically which were it was a reflection of disinvestment and a failure as i said previously a failure to understand the value of Gulf Coast assets and people. Um but the response was a uh, another order of magnitude terrifying to watch because it was so completely lacking in understanding and in compassion and in empathy. So what what key what is clear to me, what was clear to me then, it's clear to me now. Um we've moved into an era of upheaval. War or weather, loss of health or wealth, those are the things that are driving us to um, pushing us out of our homes, our communities, disrupting our lives, uh, sending us scrambling for unfamiliar shores. So I did not think that Katrina was going to be this unique event. Because it was so apparent, the failure, the catastrophe, and all of its contributing factors were existed in every community. My shorthand version of that, there's a levy in every community, a crack in every system. Um, and this is, so this is why I began to turn my attention entirely to how we respond to those uh, set of conditions and failures of systems. and, And then also the careful attention to the structures that emerge in the aftermath. The responses, the way we instinctively go about helping, and then the way we go about reconstituting lives and communities. These patterns, this should matter if, you know, of course I think that this matters most, <laughs> pay attention. but um, But also I find, you know, there's such profound, it's so, there's such profound meaning in it because if we zoom out slightly and just, pause and fully understand who we are as a species, these are the conditions all of the time. We exist as vulnerable creatures on this shared journey. And uh, most of us have made some sort of unconscious bargain with the universe. I'll do all these things. I'll have insurance. I'll pay my bills. I'll work hard. I'll, I'll be close to family. I'll do a good job, whatever, and all will go well. But there is no bargain. That's not the deal. We are vulnerable creatures on this shared journey. And this is the way we have to, this is where we must make our way. And often many of us, um, many of us reach a point in life when things fall apart. And then a whole new story begins. Okay,
0: wait, I want to pause right here because what you're saying is critical. Many people, you're saying that most people say, if I do what I'm supposed to do, follow the rules, hold down a job, take care of my family, whatever. If I follow the rules, all will go well. And then when things don't go well, we wonder what happened. This is not supposed to happen. You're saying the opposite, Mm. you're saying you can follow the rules and disaster in some form will surely come.
1: Well, you may be one of those rare folks that live your whole life in this sort of unbroken, predictable fashion. This, you know, um, safety, security, predictability routine. Some of us worship those gods. I'm not one of those people. But you've made that
0: clear. You know,
1: yeah, and, and some people live that way. Um, I don't really like those people all that much to be honest. I find that if you, if I, I find that I, I, my sense of things is we come to know ourselves and others. We come to understand, those same way disasters are revelatory about systems. They also reveal us who we are what we believe about the way the world works. And you see what, why Katrina was a breaking point for so many of us was that some of us could not understand when told how the world worked or didn't until we could see that it was not working until the evidence was overwhelming. And this is also true of us as individuals. You know, we may think we're patient people until it's 102 degrees and we're thirsty and there's no water and there's no air conditioning and you can't cook and you can't go to work and the kids are crying and we're not the patient person we imagined ourselves to be. Right. And so disasters reveal a great deal about us as individuals and they also reveal systems. And then we have a chance to actually reconsider all of the things that we've based our lives upon. Most people aren't excited about that prospect, you know? Right. We'd like to go on thinking the world works the way we thought it did, because then everything we've done till this point makes sense. Right. Right? Right. I hear
0: so many people say, that's
1: not fair. It's not
0: fair that such (laughs) and such happened. And yeah. I'm thinking, uh,
1: yeah. So how did fairness enter into the equation? Right. So this rev this revelation that people have, you know, if we will bring some grace to it, we actually go, oh, we we have a chance to understand ourselves better. When I think of some things that have occurred in my life that fall into that catastrophic category. What did I believe about people? What did I believe about how people would behave in really, really trying situations? What did I believe about power? What did I believe about how our systems work? So when I find that my beliefs are incorrect, you know, we witnessed, uh we've witnessed a lot of people getting the information that the way they see the world is not quite correct. And then we see them acting out in all kinds of crazy ways, being thrown off planes because <laughs> the mere wearing of a mask is so, you know, so some of us just can't handle it. Um, being told that how we think the world works is not the way it works. Okay, but so other wanna... people embrace the learning opportunity. Right. So one of the things about upheaval that happens is, you know, you see people expressing some kind of outrage or or astonishment that this could happen in their lives. But then there are large numbers of people, people of color, people in other countries, for which safety, security, predictability, systems working for them has never been a part of their story. So they experience these upheavals in very different ways. And we saw that in, in every disaster that's befallen this country in the last 10 years, we saw people expressing, oh, I see you're upset now, because now you see how it doesn't work. But we tried to tell you it wasn't working for us. And now it's real because it's not working for you. And I think we have to, we have to be very, um, when we're hurt, when we're brokenhearted, when things fail for us, it's a part of my practice and one I encourage in others to be mindful that there are people for whom it has never worked. They have never known, you know, I, I, I often think about how winter storm Yuri, no power. Um, once a day in Lebanon, people have the electricity shuts down and they work around it and they go on because in their world, all many of the things that we expect and to take for granted have never been predictably available. So absolutely,
0: I am so glad you made that point. And I encountered that again and again. As a matter of fact, in the in the early uh, blog posts, uh, white friends would post I never knew, and I thought I knew.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm. Uh, I have to confess being quite um, sometimes impatient. <laughs> like, how could you not know? <laughs> we told you, and we told you, and we told you. <laughs> you know. Then I go, okay. Loving detachment. Loving detachment. Because you know it. It is. It is frustrating to see uh, that people avail themselves of the not knowing, uh, and they retreat into the not knowing. Um, until uh, the water is lapping at at their door and then they know. So, um, but with, with some grace, we can then embrace the awakening and say, now you're on the team.
0: Okay. So in other words, Katrina happened and that led you to look at how people, the assumptions people made about their lives, about what was fair and how the world was organized and how all of that got disrupted in the face of disaster, and based on that, you s- decided you wanted to do that work.
1: Well, I think so let
0: me let me just say, yeah. that you, I want you to say all the disaster places you've been to, because I'm going to sh- I want to show your wisdom for, from disasters. But to set the stage, I just want you to rattle off the parts of the globe where you have been, where you've Mm -hmm. talked with people who've been in the midst of disaster.
1: So as I began doing the work of articulating the response that really matters, as well as the stages that people move through, I began getting invitations around the world to work with others who had faced, um, communities that had faced disasters that were similar in scale, or disruptions that were similar in scale to what we saw in Katrina. So um, so I went eight years in a row. I used every vacation and spare day, hour, moment for this. Um, and so eight years in a row, I went to Australia to work with communities there, learn from and also share what I was learning here. So I went to Australia. I went to Germany to um, work with, German officials as they were resettling Syrians. I went to Lebanon to one of the oldest refugee camps in Lebanon to look at the way stateless people in a confined space organize community in response. I went to Amman to look at how, at the the largest refugee reception center there as they were welcoming about 400,000 Syrians. And then to uh, a refugee camp in the desert in Jordan to see the way they were respond, how they stood up really a, a city of eighty thousand people in the desert, and then back to uh, Australia as they were responding to catastrophic flooding in Brisbane, and so this went on for <laughs> um, a while, and and then uh, you know also in Ferguson. After uh, the Michael Brown shooting. Uh, so just following as my son says I'm not a disaster responder I'm more of a disaster trailer um, but what interested me most is the process that people underwent and trying to reconstitute lives and community and the aftermath math of the unthinkable I, I I left out a couple of places, but yeah. Yeah,
0: it, it was more, but that's a good start. And if yeah. you, if you, after this is over, if you want to compile the list, we'll put it in the notes. Okay. All okay. Right. So I want to show now, that caused you to develop this draft wisdom from this aster. I'm going to share the screen. Uh, you look at it and then we'll just talk from there. Just Pick anyone. Tell us the number first. Well,
1: number one is I think your favorite, Jean, which is no one's coming. Um, I I think in addition to this craving for safety and security, this desire we have to have what cannot really be secured is, um, in addition to that, is the idea that if situations become completely overwhelming and way beyond our capacity that some one bigger better stronger faster will show up and resolve it for us or at least bring some meaningful help to the arena and it it was clear i think new orleans if you if you failed to grasp it then you it, would, it was willful. It was willful on your part because it was very obvious that every system we had created that was designed to respond failed to do so catastrophically. Failed to respond. So I remember
0: seeing. A, I remember seeing a guy on TV saying he was there with some older people who were trapped in the attic, and he said, "We." I kept telling them, "Hang on, the cavalry is coming. The cavalry is coming." Yeah, he said, and the cavalry never came, and
1: they yeah. died. Yeah, so some the wound from that is probably the deepest. Oh, and when I think of people that I've worked with, the moments and days and hours as the days and hours added up when people, um, no one came, people in, in the Astrodome would tell us that they actually imagined that. That something catastrophic had happened to the whole country because they couldn't imagine there had the only explanation for why they weren't being rescued was that there was something oh. so enormous that it would prevented people from showing up. and it prevented rescue. And I think recently, five days that Memorial is showing now and and in which it is so clear what no one is coming is. If you if you're still in doubt, then then watch it. Yeah. Um, so the, the, I I've probably watch that in a very different way than other people. One of the things that I emphasize, the reason that no one's coming is not a message of hopelessness. Eventually, um, someone always comes in some fashion with something, perhaps you need it, perhaps you don't, when they finally get there. The the, the real message here is start. Um, and I, I think in, in Australia, for example, I witnessed a lot more intelligence around this idea of we being our own first responders, of communities being the real first first responders, such that, you know, um, as, as I was uh, working with um, Queensland Fire and Emergency, they began talking about uniforms and t-shirts. The real first responders are wearing t-shirts. So it's incredibly important and the people that tend to recover best are those that start soonest. Um, and, and, and there's a, sometimes there's a, this is quite practical, Jean. We all know that if you muck and gut quickly, you might save your house. Whereas if you're not able to or you're forced to wait you can't get back in your city for example um then there's a good chance you'll lose your house because it'll it'll advance to the point where you can't resolve it
0: um oh that makes so much sense asha because what if you wait and no one comes and no one comes you're now coping with betrayal
1: yeah i i write i have a lot of a very painful chapter on betrayal. Um, I really struggled to write about it. Not that it was difficult because there are so many examples and there's so much heartbreak. Um, but it was hard to write it because um, it hurts so much. Yeah. Uh, it hurts so much. Um, and I think that it's generally... The event is most squarely in our rearview mirror before we can understand, put it in perspective and understand what was really happening. Um Okay, let's it, go
0: it, to another yeah. one. Yeah. Uh number two is exactly following what you're saying now.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I was astonished when um Astonished and not in a, a very positive way. When I hit, you know, Houston, it was rough. I mean, I, I, I definitely said, yes, we had this massive hurricane and massive flood. And then when the when the electricity came back on, we learned we were broke in 2008. You know, so um, uh, it was really, really rough. And there were a number of leaders of various uh nonprofits and some for-profits of course he just said well we don't do disasters and like if you're here you 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 do di- surely they surely. say we, we don't do disasters well we don't do disasters um and i've also seen you know this is my argument with climate change i don't care who caused it the world has changed And it continues, and it's accelerating, and the evidence is here, and we must respond. So this um, hyper-responsibility, you know, it has a downside, I can tell you firsthand, because I literally think I'm responsible for the whole city at times. Yes, sure. When I'm not. When I'm not. (laughs) Um, Because I want the best for everyone, all of them, at the same time, in the arena, all of us. Um, But I do think there's... um, I really encourage and support and and insist that people move beyond this sense of res- have a larger sense of responsibility than the narrow definitions that go with positions and titles. This is your city. This is your community. We are in this together and we own it. And I think that stance allows us and really will make the difference between a successful response and an inadequate one.
0: Okay, let's do a couple of more. And this time you choose.
1: Uh, um, oh, gosh, <laughs> that's hard. Um, I I think that um, the practicing of loving detachment- Is a number? number, number. number um, nine. Okay. Practicing a loving detachment is quite powerful. People will not act as you would hope. And then other people will act in ways that will astonish you and generosity will blow you away and you will find you will discover strengths in others you never imagined existed and you will find the true heart of a city, for example, in the middle of a storm. Um, but the loving detachment part We tend to believe that we tend to put ourselves in a position of judging what others should do. Throughout the pandemic, there was just outpouring of rage that people didn't behave the way we thought. Here we were, unprecedented event, global pandemic, not one of us ever led through anything like this before. And yet we were furious that everyone didn't get it right the way we thought. So this is not constructive. I mean, really effective leaders in the arena are constantly scanning for what people can contribute, affirming what they are what they are contributing and what they're doing that's working, and then um, you know this n- not being overly reactive to everything is really what grown-up, mature, uh, spiritually and professionally mature people can do that really changes the texture the beat the rhythm of response.
0: Right. So stop projecting our notions of the way things should be on other people and particularly when we're dealing with an unprecedented event that none yeah. of us were prepared for.
1: Yeah, I think when we zoom out, we think about uh, all of us as a species, you know, we're we're a brilliant, clumsy, knuckleheaded, extraordinary. <laughs> genius loving amazing you know hot mess and i I love us like that i love us like that
0: um yeah okay so uh
1: i let's talk about five ah so this is the whole um i saw i really have witnessed such a range of impacts and re, and such a range of recovery stories. So when you see a business where people in that organization are very clear about why they exist, we exist to do this, we've committed to it, we've brought our time, energy and attention to that mission, that clarity, that knowledge that people have in that organization about one another, that's the most important asset that gets them through disaster. If you know who you are going in, you're going to have a better shot at knowing who you are coming out. Right. So this um, being very in touch with what I also in my uh, consulting work with a number of organizations as we saw, you know, COVID rolling toward us. So now is the time to 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 understand what is most precious, what is what you want to make sure is preserved. Because remember, the economic threat was was terrifying. I mean, businesses knew many of them knew they weren't going to make it. They thought it was a very good chance they'd they'd go bankrupt. Right. So, you know, a lot of our conversation centered around what is what is absolutely worth preserving? And how are you going to commit to that and preserve it so that when you come out on the other side, you rebuild from from the heart of what makes you different and special and worth.
0: um, Okay, so five, what you're saying is five and I'm going to read it because it occurs to me that some people might be listening and not watching. Mm -hmm. Five basically is saying revisit the principles that will guide your decision making as you move through this unprecedented period. And yeah. what you're saying is being in touch with those principles and having them as a reference will help you figure out how you're going to move forward.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, and let's end with number 13. <laughs> and, so, well, uh, before you talk about it, let's, for those who are listening, it, um, I'm already
1: curious because you're laughing. Uh, Leaders practice, when I know it, you know it. People can handle the truth. We unravel when we are forced to play detective in a disaster. If you want people to follow you, you don't have to be certain, but you must be transparent.
0: And read that last sentence again.
1: (laughs) If you want people to follow you, you don't have to be certain, but you must be transparent. Okay. Explain that one. Well because we're really talking on the fifth anniversary of Harvey and the 17th anniversary of Katrina and the one year anniversary of the whole, I mean, we, we, it's, this is very fresh in my mind because as my, all the memories are popping up in my social feeds, social media feeds. Um, I'm, I'm reading my words as I'm, You know trying to rally people to meet the challenge of sheltering and responding and um i think i think there's an old model of leadership that says let me protect you from this terrible circumstances and i'll bite off a piece of it that i think you're capable of handling and then just feed that to you but that's That isn't how good leaders operate. So good leaders say, this is the full picture. Here's the part we're going to act on. Here's where I think you can uniquely contribute. I need your help here. So that kind of transparency with focus, um, we're not needing a leader to stand up at a mic and tell us how terrible, awful, and tragic it is. We are needing them to paint a picture of the larger we. That's the we in this arena that have to act together in some form of concert, some coherent way, if we're going to make uh, our way through this. And that transparency about here's what we know, and this is what we can act on, is really, that's the jumping off place for, for, to really get some kind of constructive response. And we saw how We saw also during COVID and we see it during every time in the aftermath of storms, the the way rumors spread, the way bad information gets passed on, the way that triggers more anxiety, more panic, more dysfunction, all of that destroys the energy that people have for recovery and it uses up resources. So one of the most powerful and most important roles leaders have is to construct and repeat and share that narrative again and again and again about where are we? what do we need to do now? what must you uniquely what can you uniquely contribute at this point? okay, so let's let
0: me let's dissect this leaders practice when I know it, you know it. yeah so and we unravel when we're forced forced to play detective yeah so what you're saying is if the leaders say I will tell you, What I know, no, I will lay out. I'll be fully transparent. Then people are not forced to play detective. Rumors don't have to spread, and people can devote their energies to moving forward.
1: Yeah, there's a lot more in in the actual arena, Gene. There's a lot more to this, like in a very practical way that I spell out for people. You create a predictable and reliable and routine. Um, Make routine what you can make routine. So if I know every Wednesday there's going to be a briefing and an update, then I'm only ever six days away from additional information. So, and I know that that the the person in charge with the most responsibilities told me this is going to be the conduit through which you get this update. Um, Then I know it's coming. So leaders really, you know, watching people who've mastered this I mean, it's really, the. there is an entire world of difference between me trying to do my part when there's a leader doing that versus when there's a leader either creating more chaos, spinning more fear, um, misleading. All of that just destroys every bit of the effort down here people have to rethink constantly. What am I doing? How am I doing? What is the information? Where shall I get it? What can I rely on? Who should I trust? Um, it It's a heartbreaking thing to witness because we're bring we're already taxed. We're already stressed. Right. And now we have the additional work of trying to sort out um Yeah. How to view the world. Leaders are, you know, leadership deeply matters. And I remember when I didn't think it did because, you know, I thought, ah, you know, you get a leader, great. If you don't have one, well, get the work done anyway. But I began to see over and over again, how much damage and wasted effort and what a drain it is to have really, uh, really poor leaders uh, walk to the mic.
0: In personal relationships and with work relationship, sometimes one person wants to press another person to talk and that person isn't ready. So the person says, I'm not ready to talk, which then creates havoc with the person willing to talk. And what I tell people is if you can't talk about it, say, I will get back to you on Wednesday. I need to take a 15-minute break and get my head together. Then I can talk. Don't just up and say I can't talk about it and walk off and think that's okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? It's the yeah. same. It's the same yeah. principle.
1: Yeah. Tell people principle.
0: what to expect. Give yeah. as you put it, I love this. Give people as much certainty as you can give them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we're grown-ups enough not to, we, we don't want a fairy tale. We're not yeah. children. We don't need, um, and I doubt sometimes whether even children need it, but we really don't need people to spin the situation for us. Right. Yeah. And
0: we don't want them to hold us hostage, waiting on them to get to decide they're going to share something with us either.
1: Right, that's always a misuse of power. When people do that, um, they're placing themselves in a position on a pedestal, saying, uh, "I, in some more godlike fashion, uh, can decide whether you need to know this or not." And yeah, we don't like those people very
0: much. <laughs> it gives me the shivers. I'm just you know right. the times I've heard and somebody said that to me, it just gives me the shivers. Yeah. I, I, I can take I'll, I'll, I'll share with you what I can in December I can take yeah. that quicker
1: than yeah.
0: I, I can't say anything
1: yeah a typical business situation is I know that this contract is ending I've just learned this contract is ending and you're not going to have a job in three months but I need you for three months but I don't want to tell you because then you might leave now And so that's, those are ethical tests for leaders. And that one is fairly mild. I mean, you should be able to pass that one. (laughs) I mean, really, Uh, but there are other ethical tests also about who gets served, who gets support, who gets resources, who gets treatment. And those are much harder ethical tests. Um, A colleague of mine at Brown and I will be doing um, a session with, students there uh, in a few weeks on ethical decision making because, you know, as people contemplate policy and practice, we've taken ethics out of the equation as if crafting great policy was just ultimately the goal and that there's not going to be anybody favored in this versus somebody who isn't or or the, our choices now won't negatively impact anybody. So we don't have to weigh that in. And I, I think that I, most of us make routine decisions that have negative consequences for people. In fact, you know that was that's part of the job of being a CEO or an administrator or a a leader. you're 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 choosing this, not that, to serve here, not there, to go first to Beaumont instead of Anaac. You know, these are all the things that people are doing. and these are ethical, moral, decisions but you know so what are what's the foundation for that um and i i think the communication the honest communication about we weighed these things and we did this Um, (laughs) most of us really really struggle with that Um, because we know someone's going to want to call us to account for the people we left out
0: you know, I'm listening to you just as I listened to you before and uh, with the previous blog post. And I said, oh, I want you back to disasters. some point in a year, I'd love to have you talk about ethical decision-making. That would be cool.
1: Uh, well, I'd love love for you to talk about it. I'd love for, for us to have a conversation about it because I think you and I, and maybe year, decades ago, some of our earliest conversations are about were about you know sort of the weight of organizational decision making if you genuinely want to understand the impact of what you're doing yep. i mean some of us want to step away and pretend it didn't really affect anybody but i think we had a lot of conversations about right. yes how we invest who we invest in at what point how much um, who do we fight for? All of that. Yeah. If- okay, Angela, I can't believe this
0: time has fled by. Uh, it's been a delightful conversation. You know, I'm a fan of what you do and of you personally. And I thank you for being here. Do you have any last minute thoughts or points you want to make sure get reinforced?
1: Well, first, I want to say it's friendships like ours that actually sustain people. And as Elizabeth Dole famously said, the time to make a good close friend is not 3 a.m. with a hurricane in the Gulf. (laughs) So (laughs) if, if we want to prepare and we can't think of any other ways to prepare for catastrophic upheaval, one of the most important things we can do is invest in relationships and connections because being, we are sustained by what we know of and about one another. And that's certainly been true of our friendship and I'm really grateful for it. Thank you for letting me talk about what I literally think about night and day. So I appreciate it. And um, uh, I, I appreciate you, Jean. Well, thank you. Now, tell people how they can find you. Um, I'm so findable. Facebook, Twitter, email, website, you know, and I try to respond to all of those, so. Okay, and your website is, what's the name of your website? AngelaBlanter.com. All right. Super easy, and uh, yeah, and we're working on it all the time, and so um, I blog there, and and also if people want to work with me, they can go there, or they can just email me at Kajanangela at gmail.com.
0: All right. Thank you kindly.
1: Thank you, Jane. Bye-bye.
0: The depth of Angela's knowledge always blows me away. So many takeaways from this conversation. Here are my top three, and I had a hard time narrowing it down to just these three. First, Disaster is an opportunity for something new. I see so many people stuck in regrets because this or that bad thing happened. and they wanted things to go this way, and it went and it went that way, and they lost everything or they didn't get what they wanted, or it was a terrible. Yet, as anxiousus is saying, when a disaster happens, that's an opportunity to think, how do we want to rebuild, not replace the old, but rebuild with something that serves us better. As she was talking, I was reminded of what happened to a relative of mine who had a kitchen that was old and needed repairs. Well, disaster struck, the kitchen in the unit above her flooded And so it poured down on her kitchen and everything in her uh, kitchen and some of her dining room had to be replaced. It was awful. She had to move out. She had to move out for several months for the repairs to be made. Building insurance covered her, fortunately. So she had some out-of-pocket costs, but not a lot. It was extremely disruptive, and she did not like having to move out, but she ended up with a brand new kitchen with more modern appliances, and she agreed that the pain had given her something new, so let's magnify that. And what can happen if community decides to rebuild (laughs) and build anew in a way that brings that community together? Point two, no one is coming. No one is coming. I was struck when she said that the people who had waited for someone to come are those who had the hardest time with their grief. I can imagine the disappointment and the feeling of betrayal of waiting and waiting and waiting to be rescued of people to show up and they don't come. What Angela is saying is get started, do what you can. Get started with what can be done, what you yourself can be done, what the people around you can do while you're waiting for the leaders or whoever to get themselves together to come and help. Third, I loved her comments about leaders and how they handle truth telling after a disaster. It's maddening at any time to believe someone is withholding information from you that they could tell you if they wanted to. As she explains, that's how rumors start. Better to say what you know, tell people what they can do now, and keep the information flowing as new information unfolds hope you got as much out of this as i did thanks for listening and if you want to discuss this or any of the other blog posts consider joining pathfinders you can find information about our online membership course on our website thanks for listening